0: This is a box Media
1: Podcast. For the past 20 years, I've been working in the apparel industry, sourcing, buying, and printing t-shirts for my clients. The one brand I return to every time is Bella Canvas. They cover all the bases, style, sustainability, color selection, and wearability. These really are the softest shirts available. The best news is they cut their fabric in Los Angeles. And for any of us that know the apparel industry, we know what a big deal this is. Whether you're looking for t-shirts, sweatshirts, joggers, tanks, or long sleeves, Bella Canvas really does have you covered. The best news is that Bella Canvas now has a retail line available at shop.bellacanvas.com, where you can find more information about this amazing company and discover online exclusives. Use the code DBI2021 at checkout to receive 20% off your first order. Limit one per customer. Bella Canvas really did fuel the t-shirt movement. Be different. Be Bella Canvas.
2: Since before I can remember, my parents have been incarcerated. In fact, my earliest memories are going through steel gates, waiting in lines at metal detectors, just to be able to see my parents, just to be able to give them a hug.
0: Police in a suburban town north of New York City booked two men and two women on charges of armed robbery and the killing of
2: two policemen and a Brinks truck guard. My parents left me at the babysitter and they were unarmed getaway drivers. They weren't even at the scene of the robbery. But right from the beginning, the robbery went terribly wrong my mother ultimately served 22 years in new york state maximum security prison my father is still incarcerated today with a 75 year minimum sentence he may never get out i learned from day one that our criminal justice system is not working Mm -hmm. it is not keeping us safe it is not investing in supporting victims of crime it is not rehabilitating people, it's warehousing them. And in the process, it's bankrupting state and local governments, it's destroying communities and families, and it's contributing to an intergenerational cycle of incarceration.
1: This week's episode is with the District Attorney of San Francisco, Chesa Bodine. We discuss decarcerating low-level crimes, understanding the relationship between victims and defendants, demystifying the false rhetoric around mass incarceration, and what being a progressive DA in a so-called progressive city really looks like. This week's call to action is to call your state representative or senator and tell them that you support ending the inhumane practice of solitary confinement. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Chesa Boudin,
2: the District Attorney of the City and County of San Francisco. My whole life, I've been thinking about how we approach crime, incarceration, rehabilitation, and punishment. And I've seen a system that fails crime victims and survivors, that fails to rehabilitate or restore. A system that tears families and communities apart at tremendous financial and social cost. The United States leads the world in locking people up, and it has not made us safer. When I went to law school, I wanted to fight to end mass incarceration, so I became a public defender. I defended individual people accused of committing crimes, and after years of that work, I grew frustrated with the system, with the laws, with the courts, with the way the entire Bureaucracy was set up not to rehabilitate or break the cycle, but rather to perpetuate a revolving door of crime and trauma and violence and harm. And so I decided to run for San Francisco district attorney so that instead of working on one case at a time, I could work on fixing a system that has so badly failed all of us for decades.
1: Thank you. And I'm really happy to have you on, Jason. As you know, i am I'm not even going to mince words, I'm a supporter. I'm a supporter of reform, true reform of the criminal justice system. I think just keying in on one of the things that you talked about, introducing yourself, let's just get right into it and talk a little bit about the ripple effect of the current incarceration system in the United States. Because it doesn't just affect the victim and the individual that's locked up, but there's a massive ripple effect in our community that seems to be almost ignored.
2: Well, there's a couple ways to, to get at that issue, and you're absolutely right, Kevin. I mean, one part of it is that a lot of people conceive of crime victims and criminal defendants as two totally separate groups, but that's not how it works. What we see, and we see this every day, is that people we're prosecuting in one courtroom are often the victims or witnesses of crimes. In a case we're prosecuting in the courtroom next door. In fact, thousands of people that we provide victim services to are currently or formerly defendants in cases our office has prosecuted. And so there's this cycle in connection that is often overlooked when we think about policy, when we think about the ways in which we often demonize people who are accused of crimes and lionize people who are victims of crime. These are often the same folks, and if we're more effective at supporting them when they're victims, they're less likely to be defendants in the next case. And if we're more humane and compassionate, if we're more concerned about the root causes of crime when we're prosecuting people, they're less likely to be re-prosecuted again in the future or to be victims of crime in the future. So that's part of it. Part of it is recognizing the complexity and interactions uh, between people on either side of a case. The other part of it is recognizing that even people who have committed serious crimes, even the most serious crimes, come from families, come from neighborhoods, come from communities, and tearing them away from those communities has an impact. Now, sometimes it's the only thing we can do given the severity of the crime or given the uh, challenges that the individual is facing or the, the, the recurrence of violent conduct. But we can never ignore the connection that people we prosecute have to families and communities. The majority of parents, excuse me, the majority of prisoners in this country are parents. And so just to give you a concrete example that is close to home for me, when we send someone to jail or to prison, most of the time they are leaving children behind. And the impact on those children is severe. It doesn't mean that we can never or should never send parents to jail or prison it doesn't mean that you get a free pass to commit crimes but it does mean we need to think intentionally and critically about whether incarceration is the best or only option for holding people accountable who are part of a community who have responsibilities and identities beyond simply being a criminal defendant
1: what do we say to people that are squarely on the side of kind of the punishment system these extended sentences you know, in states like California, where we're not instituting the death penalty anymore, we're seeing people incarcerated beyond their natural life. Even if it's not life in prison, you know, 40 years for a person of color that's in their 20s, the, those numbers don't add up very well. So how do we start to have this conversation with individuals that are squ- still pretty squarely in the, in the camp of, of punishment so that we can, we can be more compassionate to their feelings as well, especially ones that are victims?
2: Well, I think it's important to kind of debunk and demystify a lot of the false rhetoric around mass incarceration being good for victims. Look, we spend billions of dollars a year in California alone on our prison system. But a tiny fraction of that goes to helping survivors of crime. If we're serious about supporting victims, and I am in my office, then we need to put our money where our mouth is. And I am asking in my current budget cycle, in my current budget request, I'm asking for a dramatic expansion of our victim services work. Most of the work that my office does, and frankly, across the country that's done for crime victims, comes from grants. It's not funded by the local jurisdictions that are prosecuting people or policing people. It's not funded um, by the same revenue streams that are building jails and prisons. If if we're serious about breaking the cycle, then we need not only rehabilitation and drug treatment and mental health counseling for people who've been arrested and charged and convicted of crimes but we also need some of those same things for crime victims we need to make sure that we're helping people find stable housing that we're helping people get access to trauma recovery service when they've been victimized especially by violent crimes and that's something we do really woefully at this point you know the the california crime victims compensation board usually caps funding for funeral and burial expenses after a homicide at $7,500. That's less than 10% of the cost of a single year of incarceration. We can send people to prison for life for homicides. And yet, so we're talking about millions, tens of millions in some cases in incarceration costs. When people are harmed, hurt people hurt people. And if we can help hurt people heal, they're less likely to retaliate to go down a cycle of addiction and mental illness and depression that can often lead to further victimization or to their own arrest for crimes in the future.
1: Yeah, I think, Suave, you probably have some thoughts on on the trauma, too, of, you know, individuals, especially juveniles, being sentenced to long prison sentences and what that does to your, your mental health and your view on community and society as a whole. You know, maybe chime in a little bit here and, and tell us how that affects so we get both sides of this, too
3: i say this. I witnessed my grandfather get murdered while giving me a haircut when I was 12 years old. And nobody ever asked me if I was all right. You know, it was a normal thing in my community not to deal with that trauma. And what the district attorney office in New York did, they used my family as a political pond to try to get a conviction. Once they got the conviction, they forgot about the family. So this is why today we need honest... District attorneys, not only in Philadelphia, but across the country, that cares about the community, about the healing. We need healing in the community. And until we get that, we gonna deal with this racist system. And it's now that we're seeing it when you got states like Michigan, they refuse to honor a Supreme Court decision to resent sentence juvenile lifeless. They're refusing, some counties in Michigan, and we need more people like Chester, Larry Krasner, that respect the letter of the law on both sides. We're not asking Mr. Larry Krasner or Chester to give us a free card. All we asking is for a fair chance. That's all we asking for. <clears throat> How is it that you can spend millions of dollars incarcerating a person but you're already spending 7000 for a funeral of a homicide victim? That should not be accepted in no society in America. And the people of that community should be mad. Because this is not just about ex-offenders. This also deals with victims in the community that look like me. So I say to the people out there that we need to support progressive people in the system. Hey, you got a band that grew up with two parents in prison. There is now a district attorney of a major city making changes so other children won't have to go through the metal detectors. Because when you're in the inside, we don't know the effect that the metal detectors have on the kids and our family when they come to visit. We don't know. Should we hear people like Chester talk about it? You know, and often... District Attorney offices Across the border They use crime victims as political pawns, You know and that's not fair That's not fair to the community That's not fair to the Prosecution It's not fair to the criminal justice system Because now You got a community of color Looking at a, at a prosecutor From the side Like you for us So yes I support Chessa. Yes, I support Larry Crass And for some people That might be hard to swallow That a formerly incarcerated person Is supporting prosecutors And what I say to that is I support Justice I support fairness I support people That's going to give The next person a right To redeem themselves That's what I support You know, I don't support up because he's the prosecutor I support him because he's been through the system 39 years of watching his father incarcerated he's been through that system he understands it so when somebody come in front of him with these issues he understands that mm-hmm. person might not need incarceration that person might need some therapy that person might need a program Everything don't have to be incarceration. Yes, there's some people that's going to have to be in prison. But guess what? As long as we got progressive prosecutors in office, that person can receive a fair chance.
1: Yeah, agreed.
2: I, I really appreciate that comment. Can I just follow up on one part of it, Kevin?
1: Yeah, please.
2: You know, one of the things that I heard, and, and you know, what a what a horrible story, what a horrible experience to have to witness your father, and then to be treated on top of the the horrific loss of, of witnessing that murder, of losing a loved one, to then be treated by the system as nothing more than a piece of evidence. And, you know, I wish I could tell you that that experience you just shared was unique, that it was one of a kind, that it didn't happen to other people. But we know that prosecutors across the country use crime victims and prey on them and stir up emotions and feelings in order to do things like seek the death penalty. And then once they get their conviction, we're done, right? And let me give you a couple concrete examples of how that happens legally, but inhumanely all across the country. Prosecutors who often justify their most retributive, vindictive policies in the name of victims will also jail victims and witnesses, literally put them in jail as material witnesses so that they're available whenever the case should go to trial, right? They need to have their testimony to prove the case. And instead of, well, risking that someone who may be homeless or who may not feel comfortable coming in to testify or what have you will not be available, they say, no, the conviction is more important than what the victim wants. And so we're going to put the victim in jail, literally in a jail cell, and hold them for weeks or months until the trial date occurs. That level of hypocrisy, of disrespect of ignoring victims' wants and needs, and then at the same time, using victims and holding them out when they ask for the death penalty or life without parole, it's
3: unconscionable. And yet it happens every day across the country. And not to mention that a lot of time offenders are forced to plead guilty to something they ain't done just to avoid the death penalty off a life sentence. I know because it happened to me. It happened to me. I was incarcerated because of the street code because I had no resources to prove my innocence. When I see stories like that, and when I see cases like that, I am forced to speak. I am forced to point out that a lot of the time we end up incarcerated because of the color of our skin, because the neighborhoods that we come from, and because who is in office. And most of the time the people in office don't look like you, look like me, you know, so. When I say this institutional racism, I'm talking about people that look like me too. They're making these decisions to put these young black and brown people in prison simply because they believe they don't belong in the street. You know, it happened to me. You know, recently we discovered evidence, a confession for somebody else. Had that confession would have been given to my attorney at the time of uh, my trial, the results would have been different. But no, I end up doing the time What I'm trying to say to the people Is that we need to stop That's us against them 2020 and 2021 Is the time That we are seeing progressive Prosecutors across the country Being fair We haven't seen this In decades And we need to support it Whether you're a victim, whether you're an offender You need to support it Because if you don't We're going to go back to the drink crawl days where we basically don't have no rights. And in the early 80s, 90s, we saw this with juvenile, the super predators, where all of a sudden we became super predators and we end up serving biblical time. We don't want to go back to them times, people. We want to make sure that when we end up in the criminal justice system, we have a fair play. And that's why we need people like Larry Krasner. That's why we need people like Jessup. That's why we need to go out and educate ourselves on who they are and render a vote based on that, not on emotions, not on emotions. You know, and it's an honor for us on Death by Incarceration podcast to have you on because I believe that people need to see that the people that's making the decisions and the criminal justice system been through the system. So you know how to make a decision when somebody comes in front of you for a horrendous crime. You know, you know what portion they deserve instead of just saying, just throw the key away. You understand the mentality that come with some of these young offenders from these neighborhoods. You understand the lack of fatherhood that some of these young guys and women are facing. You understand the mitigating factors they place into the mindset of a juvenile when he reoffend or when when that juvenile offense, you know, and this is why we need progressive prosecutors across the country. What can we do to support that? Is go out and support
1: their mission and vote. I think this hits on a really important issue and it's something that I, I talk about in my circles a lot around it being interesting that actual compassion for both the victims and the offender is considered progressive in this country, you know, and it kind of leads into the idea or the fact that the U S is the only country in the world that still actually gives out life sentences to juvenile offenders. And by most standards and by international law, that's considered cruel and unusual punishment. So I think one thing that we had discussed and I'd send over to you, Chasa is how do we start to really actually change the system? Obviously, electing, which Suave just mentioned, you know, what's considered progressive prosecutors. But how do we start to bridge that gap between both, not just the the communities where this is sort of a a loop where the victims are the are also the offenders and the offenders are also the victims and we're stuck in this revolving door of well last week my cousin was shot this week i'm going you know i'm going in front of a judge to see if i'm getting my parole revoked how do we sort of like start bridging that gap and creating compassion in our communities because i think that's actually the thing that's missing more than anything else is just understanding each other and where we all come from How do we talk to people that, you know, like, I know you're getting a lot of flack in San Francisco. I mean, I I watch the trolls on your social media, but they don't want to have a conversation. So how do we start to engage that?
0: Critics and supporters of San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Bodine is ramping up tonight. KPX 5's Kenny Choi has more on a new group that is backing one of the most controversial DAs the city has ever seen tomorrow recall organizers will submit their latest campaign finance numbers but those spearheading that movement are now facing supporters of Boudin who have launched a new political action committee recall organizers point to sharp increases in property crimes like burglaries in 2020 the first year chase of Boudin took over as the new district attorney of san francisco people like mr Boudin are actually protecting the criminals and that's what a public defender does, and that's what his expertise is. But supporters of the former public defender highlight how most violent crimes have dropped since this time last year.
3: And violent crimes such as rape, assault, and robberies have all gone down in San Francisco, and overall crime has dropped by 30% in the last year, so I, I do think that we have to look at the whole picture.
0: In twenty twenty, violent crimes overall dropped by double digits, but the same police data show property crimes like burglaries jumped by more than fifty percent.
3: Proponents of the recall are kind of cherry picking very specific things to say, well,
4: this increase is because of D.A. Boudin, this is because of DA Boudin, but we actually have to look at the entire picture that overall crime is down. Yeah,
2: it's a real it's a real challenge, Kevin. Partly we're living through a moment in American politics not just in san francisco but you know across the country where thanks in part to trump and and other factors there's been a real polarization um, of viewpoints and i think social media has contributed to a lack of civic discourse when it comes to these issues you know it's like people don't actually take the time to inform themselves before they get really hostile and really aggressive and really in your face and It's hard to break through that i think part of it is that when it comes to criminal justice there's a long history of making policy based on high profile outlier scary situations the worst case the the most horrific crime is the one that drives sentencing law and you know all kinds of other changes that that affect often tens of thousands of other people whose cases look nothing like that. You know, you think about the three strikes sentencing law in California and the Polly Class case that led the three strikes was a really horrific, horrific crime by someone who had a long history of criminal conduct. But that law then got used to send people to prison for life for things basically like shoplifting or stealing a pizza for ridiculously low-level crimes where nobody was actually hurt or no weapons were used. And so we need to be really mindful as we have conversations about crime and about public safety, where we don't allow those outliers, the things that inevitably capture the headlines and get the most attention on social media, to define our understanding of what's actually happening in our communities or in our courts. That's challenging, because the media is going to cover the high-profile cases, and that's what people are going to want to read about. And when they read about it, they're going to inevitably think that's what is normal. We see that happening in San Francisco today. Anytime someone who's been previously incarcerated gets rearrested, people are up in arms and they're saying, well, this is the DA's fault. But let's be very clear about what that line of reasoning would do, where it would lead us. It would lead us to not let anyone out ever to incarcerate anyone who's ever been arrested for life. Not only is that unconstitutional, inhumane, not only would it bankrupt our state and local governments, but it would also destroy communities in ways that generate far more crime and violence and instability than it would prevent. And so we need to find ways to help people understand what the externalities, the external costs and consequences are of these kinds of policies are. We need to ensure that the law and policy sets hard and clear boundaries. Things like never prosecuting a child as an adult. Those are bright line rules that if we draw them and if we campaign on them and if we are held accountable to them by our community, then no matter how heinous one crime is, it will not be able to be used for a slippery slope that leads to people who are still developing their frontal cortex in their brain, to people who have never had a chance, who've never been loved or cared for, who've been unhoused and who are mentally ill, being demonized and sent to prison with adults for life. I mean, the kinds of things that have happened in this country and the name of victims in the name of public safety, as you pointed out, don't happen in any other country in the world. And we can prevent ourselves from going down that really vindictive, punitive, destructive path by having clear, bright lines about where we will and where we will not go. And for me, that's one example. The death penalty is another. No matter how heinous a crime is, we know that the death penalty is racist. We know that People sometimes get wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death. We know that once we start doing it in a single case, there will be a demand to do it in others. And so we have to draw the line and we have to be clear about what our limits are when it comes to punishment and and about what the costs are of going too far down that road.
1: Checker, a longtime partner of my company, Social Imprints, is a sponsor of this podcast. Checker is a fair chance employer and the leading technology company in the background check industry. They're building a fairer future through technology that balances trust, safety, and fairness. A past record should not be a barrier to the pursuit of life and professional successes. Checker helps companies and candidates achieve their goals with products like Assess, Candidate Stories, and Help with Candidate Expungements, among others. To learn more about Checker, these expungement services, or how to become a fair chance employer, go to Checker at Checker.com. Thank you, Checker. that brings up a really interesting point because you know the way that suave and i met was through a mutual friend who's the producer on the suave podcast maggie freeling who does a a show called unjust and Unsolved, and so her entire show is based on individuals that, that are likely wrongly convicted and so one of the the issues that i've noticed and You know, this is something that comes up a lot is the aggressiveness of district attorneys and attorney generals around punishing crimes to the point of leaving evidence out on purpose. Sometimes I don't want to accuse everybody that has been kind of an extreme punishment based prosecutor in that category. But it seems like the stats that a lot of the specifically larger cities are worried about are conviction rates, getting those cases closed because we want to make sure that whoever did it is held accountable. But on the other end, when police break the law or the district attorney breaks the law in hiding evidence, we've got immunity in certain cases. There's a lot of things that sort of happen to protect law enforcement on that end. And one of the things that you campaigned on was holding law enforcement accountable. And I think that goes stretches all the way to the obviously to the district attorney's office, the investigators that they use and the police that they work with. And like Suave said, we've got, you know, when this will come up in more episodes, obviously, but there's a confession in his case that in a a case where he was convicted as a juvenile and served 31 years and then 85 days because of a parole violation that wasn't even true. So how do we sort of start to hold district attorneys and the police departments accountable when they lie? And, And this isn't like shut everything down. And I'm not even talking at that level. I'm just saying like, in a reasonable and equitable way so that we're all on the same page.
2: So there's a couple of things I want to kind of unpack there. Let me start with a, with a, a big picture kind of political framework that I think is a real challenge that I, I grapple with every day and then dig into some of the specifics around police and prosecutor accountability the traditional metrics that are used to evaluate whether prosecutors are doing their job are as you mentioned conviction rates and the one that i actually see even more than that because it's a faster shorter term metric is charging rates you know what percentage of cases that police bring us do we do we file and it certainly is a a metric that shows sort of quote-unquote, productivity of the office. It shows, you know, how many cases we're filing. But the idea that filing more cases or filing a higher percentage of cases that police bring us is better ignores the fundamental question about whether police are doing a good job investigating those cases, about whether filing charges is an effective way to respond when crimes have been committed or the most effective way. And so the political pressure is to file a higher percentage of cases to seek a higher percentage of convictions. And that leads us to, as you said, often prosecutors cutting corners that can implicate fundamental constitutional rights that can lead to innocent people being convicted and sentenced to prison or to death. We need not just the kinds of policies or courageous decision-making, which I'll talk about in a minute to address police misconduct or prosecutor misconduct, but we also need to change the entire framework through which the public and the media questions and evaluates whether prosecutors are doing their job well. And it's a difficult thing to do because the real measure of a successful prosecution, in my view, should not be these short-term metrics that are so directly tied to mass incarceration, but rather should be about building longer-term safety and promoting confidence in the criminal justice system through seeking justice, not just convictions. But those are longer-term metrics. They're more abstract concepts. We don't necessarily know, for example, if we uh, have a program like the one I launched uh, my first week in office, a primary caregiver diversion program, so that parents can stay at home with their kids and earn dismissal of their charges through doing parenting classes rather than sitting in cages and have their kids go to foster parents. We don't know in some of those cases for 5, 10, 15 years if those decisions paid off, right? Because we're trying to break an intergenerational cycle of crime. We can't measure that before my next election. So it's a difficult thing politically to really change the parameters and change the, the, the ways in which we evaluate success.
0: San Francisco's district attorney, Chase Boudin, is making good on a campaign promise, eliminating cash bail effective immediately. The
2: cash bail system as it worked uh, until yesterday in San Francisco allowed wealthy people who were dangerous to buy their freedom and be back on the street immediately. Well, poor people Who
0: presented no public safety risk could languish behind bars. The system going forward will use an algorithm which calculates the likelihood that the accused will fail to show up to court or commit criminal acts while out free. The district attorney says that algorithm will be a tool used by prosecutors and judges to ensure dangerous suspects remain behind bars.
2: There's tremendous empirical evidence to show that. Money bail undermines public safety and that uh, risk based alternatives
0: enhance public safety. The district attorney's plan is already meeting with strong opposition. The San Francisco Police Officers Association releasing a statement reading in part, quote, Mr. Bodine is in the process of building the largest criminal justice revolving door imaginable, and San Franciscans will pay a heavy price for it. Around the Hall of Justice, bail bondsmen agree. None we spoke with would talk on camera, but said their future is up in the air. One bail bonds worker predicting more criminals on the streets within the next six months. But the public defender's office is saying carefully reviewing a threat assessment coupled with oversight will bring fairness to a fundamentally unfair practice.
4: Many, many courts have said that that, uh, conditioning liberty on wealth is unconstitutional. I've never been bailed out one time in my life. I went to jail four times. I've never been bailed out once. Cody
0: Johnson says the threat of a bench warrant for missing court is enough of an incentive to get him to his court dates and says money plays a huge role in justice.
4: It's ridiculous, it's
1: like you're saying like, if you got money, you get out of jail. It's like you get a get out of jail free card.
0: Let me talk about a couple
2: concrete things we've done, particularly around police accountability. As you pointed out, Kevin, you know, across the country for, for decades and still to this day, prosecutors and police have worked hand in hand, and we have to. We have to in some ways. I cannot prosecute a criminal case unless the police investigate, find the person that did it, bring me their investigation, bring me an arrest. I can't prosecute. So I need to rely on on local police to do that. But I also need to be independent enough of them and of their unions that I can make independent, neutral, detached, objective decisions when a police officer is accused of a crime, whether it be perjury, or manslaughter, or assault with a deadly weapon. And we know that across the country, prosecutors have not been able to do that, that there's been a double standard when it comes to enforcing the law, and that police are essentially above the law. We saw that when George Floyd was killed, one of so many of countless unarmed Black men killed at the hands of law enforcement every year, that it led to a national uprising demanding that people start paying attention To police accountability and transparency, demanding that black lives matter. And so my office took action in response to that uprising. It was something we had actually run my campaign on in 2019 to begin with. And among other things, we filed three criminal cases against uh, San Francisco police department officers or former officers who, while on duty, used unlawful force against unarmed black men. We filed the first ever homicide charges against a on-duty San Francisco Police Department officer for shooting and killing an unarmed black man. Just this week, a San Francisco judge, after a preliminary hearing, agreed with us that there was enough evidence to bring these charges in one of the cases to trial. So that's something we've done. But I wanna be clear, we don't file charges against every police officer who uses force. We know that in some circumstances, whether we like it or not, it is lawful to use force. And so we had a case recently where police shot and killed a man and we were really unhappy with the circumstances we were really frustrated by the way it went down by the number of of gunshots and the number of officers who shot but the fact was that young man had shot a gun at the police first in another one a, a man with a knife ran at the police charged them carrying a knife after having just committed or attempted to commit a very serious crime. In those cases, while we wish that the police had not used deadly force or had found a way to de-escalate the situation that could have avoided the need to discharge their weapons, we also cannot file criminal charges against those officers when they use force and self-defense. So what we try to do is be objective and evaluate the use of force, the same way we would evaluate use of force by anyone else under the standard of the law with the facts and the evidence we're given and if we see evidence suggesting a crime was committed if we believe we can prove a crime was committed we will file charges and we have done that we also need policies and practices that deter police from racial profiling from excessive force from cutting corners so i'll give you an example uh, of one of maybe a dozen policies that we've put in place in this this area. We know that sometimes when police don't like someone or when police use excessive force against someone, they will arrest that person and charge them with things like resisting arrest or assaulting an officer. Now, if someone in fact does assault an officer, we take that seriously and we will prosecute that case. But we cannot continue to blindly allow ourselves to be complicit in covering up excessive force through filing of criminal charges. And so I implemented a policy that requires my assistant district attorneys prior to charging those kinds of cases to review body-worn camera footage and other available evidence or video footage to ensure that the person we're charging did in fact commit a crime and was not instead the victim of a crime at the hands of police. That's just an example of a simple thing we can do to change police behavior and to ensure we're not complicit with excesses or violations of the law by the police. I'll give you one other example and then I'll, I'll stop. San Francisco has a long, well-documented history of disproportionate traffic stops against people who are black and brown. Black motorists in San Francisco are far more likely to be stopped and one stop searched by police than people who look like me and this has been well documented for at least 20 years as recently as 2016 the obama department of justice did a, a high-profile report an investigation that documented this issue that recommended very concrete policy changes and yet in 2020 in 2021 the statistics were just as bad so we implemented a policy shortly after i took office to ensure my office would not be complicit in this widespread, decades-long civil rights violation, to ensure that we could begin to rebuild trust with communities that have been over-policed and over-impacted by crime, to ensure that we could put pressure on police to start changing their behavior and focusing their time and their resources on responding to violent crimes in progress rather than targeting black motorists. The policy's simple. If police bring us a contraband case that stems from a racially biased traffic stop, we won't prosecute it, we won't prosecute it. We want to prosecute the, those kinds of cases, we will prosecute them if the interaction is not based on racial bias or prejudiced policing practices. And so we made that clear to the police, stop doing it. We're not gonna file the case anyway. Start using your resources in other ways that don't discriminate and do so much damage to the public trust.
1: And I think all of that is, I mean, it's its so funny that this is even the starting point that we have to deal with. Not funny, ha-ha, but funny, ironic. One of the things that I was curious about, and I think specifically applies to to Suave, is the idea of lifetime parole after release. So can you give me a little bit of your thoughts around that? I mean, Suave and I have kind of like... Jokingly referred to it as like house arrest at certain times, depending on what you're up to. But I mean, he has to check in to leave the city of Philadelphia and he served 31 years and an 85 day parole violation for something he didn't do. And that's what he's under for the rest of his life.
2: Recidivism is a reality in our criminal justice system. And we know that a lot of people being released from custody will end up back in jail or prison, although many of them for technical Violations like the one you mentioned. I think there's a couple ways that we could think about this issue. So, so one is that if we were more serious about rehabilitation while people are incarcerated, then we wouldn't need nearly as much supervision Mm -hmm. once they're released. If we were really doing drug treatment and mental health counseling and job training and you know weekend furloughs and all you know promoting contact with communities and with employers, if we help people, once they're released, get on their feet with housing vouchers and making sure that people getting out of prison have state IDs and all of the other paperwork needed to get housing and to get jobs, then we have far less need for supervision. And I think that there's a role that probation or parole could play in helping smooth transitions, which can be really difficult. I remember when my mom got out after 22 years. And it was a massive transition for her. And, and my mom didn't have substance use issues or mental health issues. She had a loving family and community. She had a job waiting for her. It was still a big transition. Now she ended up being on parole, I think for about seven years. She didn't need to be on parole. She didn't need to have someone coming to do home checks or asking her for her urine or showing up randomly at her job. For the most part, she didn't need to pay the fee to be on parole. So those kinds of things often create hurdles and obstacles to successful success uh, reentry rather than supporting people. Now, there's a role that it could play, but it needs to be one that's based on helping people when they're struggling rather than setting them up to fail or gotcha moments when people are at their weakest. And I think the problem is that historically in, in California and, and across the country, These agencies have mainly been extensions of policing departments, rather than providing the kinds of social services and supports that, frankly, many people need, not just people coming home from prison, but many people need to be successful, to be their best selves and to make the biggest contribution possible to their community. Under California law, people who are are on life or parole are supposed to get off parole after five or seven years, depending on the particular sentence. But that's often a myth, just like the release on parole itself is often a myth. The the denial rates for parole boards and for people who have served their time on parole in the community are uh, astronomically high. And it sort of makes a mockery, not just of this idea that if you do your time and do it well, that you you, you can get out when you're eligible, but it also makes a mockery of the notion that we're there to support people or, or or help them succeed. And it, and it really feels to many people on probation or parole that, that they're really just being set up and, and that they're trying to create more
3: hurdles and obstacles for them to succeed.
1: Suave, so, I mean, I'm sure you have some feelings about this. Yeah, I got a
3: question. Ask a lawyer. I just want to ask you a question and feel free to hurt my feelings and not answer it. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> hurt your feelings. Come on. The United States Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional to incarcerate a child for life. How is it possible that that same child is now being put on paper for life? I don't have a good answer.
2: What I can tell you is that the courts often distinguish between incarceration and supervised release with the basic distinction being, and I think it's an important and a real one, that deprivation of liberty when you're incarcerated is, is, is near total. I mean, your freedoms are, are, are basically totally curtailed. When you're released on parole, there are limits and restrictions, but you are far more free. The deprivation of liberty is far less invasive than when you're incarcerated. That being said, I think you make a really valid point, which is if, if we recognize that children are children, and that we treat them differently under the law, and that when we punish children for committing crimes, that we actually do it through a framework that's called the best interest of the child. That's the framework that we use in all 50 states when we talk about all sorts of legal proceedings involving children, whether it be juvenile courts for delinquency, whether it be for uh, child custody in family separation, you name it. If If that's the standard that we hold out, the best interest of the child, How can we say that after serving however many years in prison, it's in their best interest to then spend the rest of their life being monitored and supervised? Uh, I think it's a tough sell. I I don't see the argument. I don't get it. I think we should aspire to a society where we provide people with the support and the infrastructure and the supervision they need to eventually be free, to be really free.
1: Yeah, so I think we're getting close to time here, and I, I wanna I wanna honor your schedule because I know you're an incredibly busy man, and an hour out of your day is amazing during the week. I I do want to say so. When are, when are you up for re-election? And you know, the obvious question is, are you going to run again?
2: I'm going to run again, absolutely. You know, this is. Uh, let me just say the the criminal justice system has taken decades. To build up mass incarceration, to tear apart families and communities, to erode trust between law enforcement and the people we're supposed to serve. I never expected to be able to fix all the problems in my first year or even my first term. We're making progress. We're doing great things that we're proud of, but it is going to take time to undo the harm that's been caused over so many years. I'm up for re-election in November of 2023. So i'm about a year about 14 or 15 months into a four-year term
1: okay so you obviously have a lot of detractors and san francisco has always been sort of a for me and owning a business especially one that gives you know fair chance employment opportunities to people it's always been a kind of a contradiction it's you know seen by most of the country as an incredibly leftist sort of city but if you dig into the politics here there's some incredibly conservative people, and I'm not talking about conservatism in the terms of like small government, but in terms of just the attitudes, especially towards especially towards crime and punishment, I'll just be blunt. How do we as supporters of criminal justice reform sort of like talk to your detractors and people, you know, because they need to somewhat trust that. This is going the right direction, but how do we get that message across to them? Because I, I, I don't personally love confrontation, but I'll, I'll be confrontational if necessary. I, I, do, I do want people to understand where this is heading, though. And it, this is—you're either going to be on the right side of history, <laughs> or you're not, because this is going to change. But I want—I want it to be like a compassionate change.
2: Absolutely, I think the the key thing is just facts. Facts matter, and there's so much dishonesty and manipulation and distortion.
4: Most of these headlines have probably been saying that your city or cities in your neighboring areas were once quiet places that are now descending into crime and chaos. And there are a few particularly popular methods that news outlets use to tell this story. So one method is to focus on incomplete or selectively chosen data sets to disingenuously tell the story that crime is rising. And others revolve around specific crimes, so often very tragic outliers, to claim that threats are lurking around every corner. And the common thread between these methods is that they are all designed to send the same message. And that's the message that you should be scared and that you should be demanding more aggressive interventions from your elected officials to keep you safe, to keep crime from impacting you directly. And so in recent months, few cities have seen more of these stories than San Francisco, where DA Chase Boudin recently finished his first year in office. Now, before we dig deeper, let's start with some facts. So San Francisco is a large city, and any large city does experience crime. But the question is, how much is crime actually rising there? Well, like pretty much every major city, crime has actually plunged dramatically since their height, since its height in the 1990s. And in 2020, crime in San Francisco actually decreased by 24.5% year over year, as DA Boudin noted himself in a recent interview. And by the way, that included double digit drops in categories like auto burglaries, um, uh, petty theft, assaults, robberies, and homicides increased slightly from a low record in two, in 2019, the lowest record that they ever had, but we're on par with numbers from 2018. And so San Francisco also did see an increase in burglaries this past year in 2020, which is an uptick with largely many contributing factors like the COVID-19 pandemic, extreme poverty, economic desperation, and uh, many businesses and other properties being vacant and vulnerable to break-ins. And so these burglaries 100% are a concern. But if you view the data as a whole, it's pretty fair to say that crime in San Francisco has gone down and the city is actually safer than it has ever been.
2: We don't need to be confrontational. We simply, you know, the, the, the only weapon you need in these conversations is data, facts, and truth. So I'll give you a couple key points, for example. Contrary to what a lot of folks say, crime is actually down by historic margins since I took office, right? And it doesn't mean that we've solved all the problems or even that I and my office deserve credit for crime going down. But the critics and the detractors will argue that my policies have somehow made San Francisco less safe. That decarceration, right, we reduced the county jail population since I took office by about 40%. And the fearmongers and the police unions And the the Republican operatives will tell you, well, if you let people out of jail, these are bad, scary people. If you let them out of jail, crime will go up. And in fact, what we've seen in San Francisco over the last year is the opposite. That even as we decarcerated, crime rates fell. And that we created a virtuous cycle, right? Where by having crime rates fall, we had fewer people coming into the jail. And by having fewer people come into the jail, we had fewer lives disrupted, We had fewer people lose their housing and we actually were able to stabilize many areas of of crime that had been really problematic in San Francisco in years past robberies and assaults fell by double digits auto burglaries shoplifting fell by over 50% and of course the pandemic is driving some of these changes, but it's really important to simply lead with facts. If we can safely decarcerate, if we can reduce our jail population and crime rates can fall in San Francisco, we can do it anywhere. And people who want to point to one or two or 10 high profile crimes to suggest that this is somehow my fault should be reminded that in other jurisdictions like Oakland and San Jose and across the country, crime rates in certain categories are rising without regard to the policies of the district attorney, without regard to who's elected to which office, there are factors like access to guns or like the massive surge in unemployment because of the pandemic that of course drive certain crime trends, but facts have to matter. And we have to remind people that we do not and cannot make criminal justice policy based on one case. We need to do it based on the big picture based on an understanding of what actually works to keep us safe and not simply the fear-mongering we see on Nextdoor or Twitter.
1: Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's just a, a perfect way to close this. I do want to, let our listeners know that you have a podcast called chasing justice that you work on and 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 produce with rachel marshall in your office um, who also was very helpful in getting you on so a little shout out to rachel you know and chase uh, i just want to say as somebody that's been in this fight to reform our justice system or lack of justice system for almost 20 years, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I'm I'm so glad that, you know, one of your former colleagues at the public defender's office introduced us a couple of years ago while you were running for office, you know, and I, I've been watching the crime stats and I, I, it's totally obvious that crime has gone down. I think what's happening is people are focusing on specific crimes to sort of make their point and using fear mongering to inflate those particular crimes and stats and you know if, if people want to look at the facts they're there for anyone you can search it on Google uh, it's it's very simple to find and as, as many of the people that want to argue with me tell me they can easily Do their research, and I say that with some sarcasm, but I also say that in all seriousness. And I know that people that have had histories like Suave's will benefit from these these new policies, and our communities are going to benefit from these new policies. But we really appreciate you coming on, Suave. Did you have any parting words for for Chesa?
3: Yeah, um, keep keep doing the great work in San Francisco, and hopefully, I will make it out there and come visit and let the public know that this is not a us against them that we could all work together, even if we were at one time in two different sides of the app. We're now in the same cause, which is educating the community and making sure that they understand their rights. Well, I appreciate you,
2: Suave. I appreciate you, Kevin. Thanks for the work. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being such an important part of that public education process and for helping to build safety with a longer term and more Uh, humanistic vision. Thank you both.
1: And we look forward to supporting you in a couple of years. Appreciate that. Thanks. Next week on the show, we have Eric Riddick. In 1992, he was convicted of a crime in Philadelphia that he claims he did not commit.
3: I was falsely accused by one individual and because of the defects in the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. manifest into a wrongful conviction, which in my
1: case lasted for 30 years. Nearly 30 years later, on May 28th, 2021, The Philadelphia DA's office released him from prison.
3: How do an innocent man or woman survive this system knowing they're innocent and not get lost in that system and become part of that fabric?
1: This is another case of misconduct by the Philadelphia police and the DA's office. They're giving up admissions in exchange for the hope for freedom at some point. As we continue to hear more about these cases, we will continue to report. Please listen next week. This is a compelling interview. And we're really grateful to Eric for coming on the show.
3: Life, a life sentence. What y'all did, we all clarified, is really a death sentence.
1: Death by incarceration. Thank you from all of us at Death by Incarceration. Brought to you by Crawl Space Media, Suave Gonzalez and Kevin McCracken. Please listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration wherever you get your podcasts.